here, and Pastor Chuck is away. He's uh, leading at uh, Light in the Desert this morning, so you can pray for him as he's preaching for that sister church. And we just finished a short sermon series on money, it lasted six weeks, and next week we begin a, a longer series in the book of 1 Samuel, so uh, we'll be taking that all the way through the summer. And so I'd encourage you to read 1 Samuel now, uh, grab a friend and read it together. Certainly use that in your own quiet time just to, to read through so you're familiar and you can be reading along with us as we and preparing as we preach a week by week through 1 Samuel. So Pastor Chuck uh, asked me to, to preach this, this standalone sermon, and I asked him, what, what, do you, what do you want me to preach on? He said he didn't care. And um, I asked a little bit further, and he said, just something positive, encouraging, and uplifting. And so, um, I don't know about you, but when Pastor Chuck thinks of positive, encouraging, and uplifting, he thinks of me. <laughs> so, <clears throat> in all seriousness, our topic for today is one that I think you would agree with me is, is probably the most uplifting, the most positive, the most encouraging thing that we can hear, that we can talk about. So, it's a topic that brings a lot of hope but it also engenders a lot of confusion as well. And it's fair to say it's a topic that, that people place a lot of hope in, even if they don't understand all of the details. And so that led me to wonder, what, what other topics do people not really fully understand, but have a lot of hope in? And of course, I thought of the lottery. So I did a little research on the lottery, and I was shocked, um, as I'm sure some of you may be, or maybe you've heard some of these things before. You want to hear the details? About the lottery, okay. So lotteries work by bringing in lots of money from people that buy tickets. And so they get this amount of money, and then they pay out this amount of money. So the only people that consistently win the lottery are the people that run the lottery. They are always the winners. Uh, with the exception of just a tiny, tiny fraction of people who, who win, who hit it big uh, on the lottery, everybody else is a loser when you play the lottery. So, there's lots of statistics regarding the likelihood of winning the lottery. You've probably heard things like that. My, my favorite one is that you're more likely, you have a greater chance of, of drowning in your own bathtub, even if you never take a bath, <laughs> than of winning the lottery big. Having said that, people still play the lottery. Lots and lots of people still play the lottery. So research shows that around one quarter of the people that play the lottery, they, they don't really have any expectation of winning. They're just playing because it's, it's just a fun hobby. They, they don't really have an expectation. They just want to play, just something to do. But that leaves three quarters of people that play the lottery that actually believe they're going to win and win big when they play the lottery. So clearly, the vast majority of people that play don't understand the way probability works or the lotteries work. So that's a lack of understanding. But what about hope? Well, a lot of people think about retirement. There's probably a lot of people in this room that have thought about retirement. What am I, how am I going to make ends meet in retirement? So they've done some surveys on that to, to get some information about how people consider how they're going to make it in retirement. And this one survey I found said that 89% of people that were surveyed are counting on governmental help something like Social Security. That's one of the ways that they are planning on funding their retirement. When they retire, they're counting on the government to help supplement that. 
are counting on personal savings. So maybe they've got some investments or they've got some money in the bank that they're, they're counting on that to help them to bridge the gap from when they retire to when they finally pass away. 59% are planning to get a part-time job in retirement. So they're going to end their full-time job and they know they're, they're not going to be able to make ends meet, so they know they're going to need a part-time job. 40% are counting on an inheritance. So they're just waiting around for mom or dad to die or aunt or uncle to give them an inheritance so that they can make it through retirement. And then an astounding 34% of those surveyed had hopes for a lottery win to help them in retirement. So over a third of people that were surveyed are planning on the, retire uh, planning on the lottery funding their retirement. So we have a lack of understanding about how the lottery works, and we have misplaced hope, right? So that brings us to our passage today. We're going to talk about eschatology. Everybody say eschatology. All right, eschatology is just a, it's a $5 word, a, a, a highfalutin word for end times theology. Eschatos is the Greek for last things. So it's a study of the last things, a study of what happens at the end of time. So like the lottery, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this topic, a lot of misunderstanding about what it means, and yet we as believers place our hope in the happy thought, in the happy fact that Christ is going to return, that he is returning to claim us. So open your Bibles, if you would, uh, to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, if you don't have a Bible, it's under the seat in front of you. I forgot to look at what page that's on, but you got Galatians, Ephesians. It's one of Paul's letters, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to read just a few verses, beginning in verse 13. Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So some, some strange terminology in this passage. There's talk about people being asleep. Uh, there's uh, an order to things, talking about future events, but there's an order to these future events. This happens first, then this happens, and this happens, and then we've We've also got these super Christians who are flying through the air. And so just some really weird, weird stuff in here. And we're going to look at this passage and try to ask and answer three questions. We're going to ask, what's going on? What does it mean? And then how do we respond? What's going on? What does it mean? And then how do we respond to this? So the first thing is, what's going on? So just to refresh our memories of where we are in the biblical story, remember that, that God became man, he humbled himself, not just man, he humbled himself to become a baby, and grew up and began his ministry. And as he began his ministry, he gathered disciples, he gathered people to himself. And these, 
These disciples were just like you and I. They were, were sinners. Uh, they were troubled in many ways. They had uh, lots of questions for Jesus. So just normal people like, like you and I. And then he lived out his purpose, Jesus did. And that purpose was to point to and to glorify God the Father, to draw everyone to himself, to live a perfect, sinless life, and then to die a death in which he would take all of the sins of, of believers upon himself and in exchange give us, as believers, his holiness, his righteousness. So following his death, Jesus then rose from the dead. He walked, he talked, he, he ate, he taught the disciples, and then he finally ascended to be with his Father in heaven. And now, at this point in the story, there are churches that are beginning to, to gather up. Believers are coming to know Christ. People are coming to accept Christ as, as Lord and Savior. And churches are beginning to form. And we have that here with this church at Thessalonica. So this is the gospel that God came down to us. And he loves us and he gave his life for us so that we might have eternal life with him. And we, here in 2019, we have such an advantage over the people that this was originally written to, this passage was originally written to. We have the whole of Scripture. We can hold the the Bible that you're holding in your hands. The Thessalonians did not have the entirety of that Bible at the time that this was written. So we have that for ourselves. Even more, it's readily available with with commentaries from people who are much smarter than I am. Uh, You can read all sorts of commentaries. We're standing on the shoulders of 2,000 years of church history of people that have been able to help us to understand more and more about what Scripture says. But again, the Thessalonians were not in our situation. They didn't have the entire Bible, and they didn't have 2,000 years of God working in the life of other believers to help us to rightly understand the Word of God. So yes, the Thessalonians had heard the words of Christ spoken in John 7, They heard that Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. And then they'd heard in John 14, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also." So they'd heard Jesus say that he was going away. They'd heard that he'd said that he was coming again. They believed in Jesus, but they were confused about this. They were were saying, what's taking so long? Why hasn't Jesus returned? Why is there still suffering? Why, Why are my loved ones, my friends, still dying? So they don't understand. They believe Jesus. They're taking him at his word that he is coming again. But as they don't have all of Scripture, they're confused. They're uncertain about what this means and what's happening. So even worse, they believe it's possible that Jesus may already have returned. If you'll flip just a couple pages to your right, you'll see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that someone had written a false letter in the name of Paul claiming that Jesus had returned. It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. So again, they don't have the entire Bible, and there's, so there's confusion and even grief 
rampant as they're thinking about their loved ones who had died. They're trying to understand what's happening. Jesus said he's coming again, but he's not here. People are still dying. And to add to that confusion, there's a misunderstanding about whether those believers in Christ, their relatives who had put their trust and their faith in Christ and had died, what's going to happen to them? Are they going to be in heaven with God, or did they miss out? Were they left behind? So just as a quick aside, this this terminology about sleep, uh, maybe everybody understands that, but just to make sure we're on the same page, this this terminology about falling asleep, that just means Paul's referring to people who have died. Right? We, We... that's not just a first century thing. We still have that way of talking about, about things today. If you've been at a funeral recently, you maybe remember uh, somebody saying that the person looked so peaceful as though they had fallen asleep or as though they were sleeping. It's the same kind of thing that we talk about today. So, again, put yourself in the Thessalonian believer's shoes. You're awaiting Christ's return, and then a loved one dies. And you're saying, what will happen to that one when Christ returns? They're dead and buried, so does that mean they missed out? Are they being punished for some reason? What if I die before Christ returns? What happens to me? So these are, these are good questions that result from the fact that they're looking ahead to Christ's return. They're, they're thinking about Christ's return. They're looking ahead to that. So it's a result of, of that high hope that they've placed in Christ returning, but also in the fact that they're just misinformed. They just don't have enough information. And Paul is trying to correct that. So let's not be too hard on the Thessalonians uh, because they, it, they're not a bad church. In fact, Thessalonians are, are known, this, this book, 1 Thessalonians, is known as one of the only places, I think it's the only letter that Paul wrote that has no condemnation for the church. And if you, if you know Paul you know that Paul didn't have any problem calling people out. He, he was very direct with both churches and individuals. He had no issue with that at all. And yet, in this book of 1 Thessalonians, we do not see anything in the, in the realm of harsh words or condemnation or, or negative um, words to the people at Thessalonica. So, of course, they weren't a perfect church, but they were living out what a church ought to be because they were looking ahead to the return of Christ. They were waiting for Christ to return. They were hoping to be found faithful and blameless and righteous when Christ returned. So they were living their lives today in light of the return of Christ. So look at a few verses with me to see how Paul highlights this. I think the references will be on the screen, but not necessarily the verses themselves, so flip around if you want. This is from chapter 1 of verse Chapter 1, verse 3, Paul commends the Thessalonians for remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he speaks of hope, the hope that they have in Christ. And then later on in that chapter, verses 9 and 10, Paul commends their good reputation that they have in the community. He says, for they themselves, for other, other believers, other believers report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So Paul's aware that their focus is on the return of the Lord. They're they're focusing on that. They're waiting for Christ to return. In chapter 2, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you, 
for you are our glory and joy. So Paul can speak of the Thessalonians as his hope, as his joy, as his crown of glory when Christ returns, and he, he speaks of that as if they understand what he's talking about. They understand, they're, they're thinking about the return of Christ. And then in chapter 3, verses 11, 13, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So this is a people who are well aware that Christ is returning. They believe it. They know that Christ is returning. And not only that, they were a loving church. Paul writes later in, or earlier in, in uh, verse 9 of chapter 4, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So this is a loving church that's trying to live out their lives and serving and being children of God by looking ahead for the return of Christ. Yet with all of that knowledge, with all of these, these commendations, all of these good words that Paul is saying, they were still misguided in some way. They still had some wrong beliefs, and Paul is seeking to address those wrong beliefs that they have. So that's what's going on. That's what was happening in Thessalonian church life when Paul wrote this. So what does it mean then? Well, Paul sets out to correct this this wrong beliefs, this, these misguided beliefs. So again, remember, they didn't have the whole Bible. Uh, I was trying to think of a way to describe this, but imagine that if I, if I told you, I want you to be in Surprise, Arizona at 1.30 this afternoon. And so you generally know, you know, Surprise is up in the Northwest Valley, right? And so you know it's up in that direction. And then you get in your car to head there, and your phone dies, and you don't have a, a charger for your phone, so you have no GPS. And so you kind of know how to get there, but you don't really know exactly what it is. So you're just kind of muddling your way, thinking your way through. It's kind of what the Thessalonians would do. They'd heard that Jesus was returning. They knew that he was coming back for them, but they didn't know all the details. This is new teaching to them. Paul is teaching them something new to help direct them, to help speak to this concern. So Paul is sharing the truth about Christ's return, and the main point of what he's sharing is so that people will have hope, so that people will be comforted, and so that people will be encouraged. So let's understand some things about this passage. Let's understand in particular some things about end times theology. Now, when I, when I said that, I'm sure that there were some of you, that your ears just perked up. You, you think, I have a, a definitive belief about the end times, and let's see if Tad's right in this. So you're kind of rubbing your hands together, just waiting to hear what I'm going to say about this. Others are thinking, I've heard so many things about end times theology, and I don't have a clue what that means. Uh, there's probably a few in the room that say, I saw both the Kirk Cameron version and the Nicolas Cage version of, of um, Left Behind, and so I know everything there is to know about the end times. If Kirk Cameron said it, then it's the gospel. I believe it. And then there's still some others that say, I have no idea what you're talking about, and I'm pretty sure that I don't care. So I know there's, there's a wide range of, of thoughts on this. So this passage is used by different people to say different things. Some point to this passage to indicate pre-tribulation theology, some post-tribulation. Some say it points to Christ returning twice, some to Christ returning once. 
If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't stress about that. Don't worry about that because what does Paul say at the beginning and the end of this passage, verse 13 and verse 18? He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So don't don't miss the main point. Paul wrote this to give the Thessalonians hope and to encourage them about Christ's return. John Piper said, this agreement over pre and post tribulation shouldn't threaten our fellowship. It shouldn't be divisive. The things on which we agree are so stupendous or so amazing as to overwhelm our hearts in common love for the Lord and his appearing. Let us not make the second coming a center of controversy, but a cause for worship and earnest hope and liberating confidence for the ministry before us. So just as we don't have to understand fully how the lottery works to understand that we don't need to put our hope in that, we we don't have to understand fully everything there is to understand about the second coming for us to put our hope in that. So having said all that, We're going to spend just a moment, a few moments, talking about what Scripture tells us about Christ's return. So in just kind of talking about this, let me just indicate again, this this can be confusing. Sometimes when I'm thinking about end times theology, I feel like I'm playing that, I actually looked up what the name of this game is. It's called the Claw Arcade Game. I always associate it with restaurants when I grew up. You know, the big box game with all the toys or the stuffed animals at the bottom and the claw and your kind of moving the claw around, you can drop it down. You feel like you, you, you've got that stuffed animal or whatever it is that you're looking for. Bring it up, and then it falls out of your grasp. That's sometimes the way I feel when I'm thinking about end times theology is I think I've got it, I think I understand, and then it kind of just disappears on me. So hopefully you won't feel that way <laughs> by the time we finish with this. So even so, while the main point of this passage is for us to have hope and for us to be encouraged, we do need to address what the text is actually saying. So volumes and volumes have been written on Christ's return, and I'm going to do it justice as a joke. I'm going to do it justice in five minutes. So get ready. So do keep in mind that John Piper quote, disagreements about end times theology shouldn't threaten our fellowship. They shouldn't be divisive. So we're going to major on the big picture, and we're going to minor on these details. But we are going to talk about the details just for a moment. So first thing, we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that there are two options for the believer in Christ. There's two places that the believer in Christ can be. They're either alive, physically alive, here on earth, or they are physically dead but alive and with Christ, spiritually alive and with Christ. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, so that's option one, we're at home in the body, we're away with the Lord, or away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's the second option. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So only two options, and we see those two options again in, in several places in Scripture, but another one is Philippians 1. It says, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that's option one, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. 
So again, two options for the believer. You're either here, physically alive here, spiritually alive, and physically alive here, or you're physically dead, but spiritually alive with Christ. So when we die, we immediately go to be with the Lord. So be encouraged by these words. When we die, we will immediately be with Christ. Second, look at verse 17 of chapter 4. Paul says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So that phrase, caught up, you've, you've heard of the rapture, the rapture of the church. Christ returns and raptures the church. This is it. Now, you, you won't find that word rapture in the Bible. That, that's not in the Bible, that word itself. But caught up, that's what that's referring to. So it's taken by force. It's a forceful, certain action. There's a sense of assuredness to it. It's going to happen. You can't stop it. It's, a, it's in a twinkling of an eye. It's an immediate thing that you can't stop, that, that when Christ returns, we are caught up immediately to be with him. So be encouraged by these words. Third, look at that word meet in verse 17. It's that word, that Greek word meet, the Greek word for meet, is used two other times in the New Testament. Uh, once in Matthew 25, 6, and then again in Acts 28, 15. And both times it's used, it, it's used to refer to a person that's going out to meet somebody and then immediately returning with them. So going out to meet them and then immediately returning with them. So this is the rapture in the sense of we're going to meet Jesus in the air, but then we're immediately coming back with him as he judges the earth. So be encouraged by these words that we are going to meet Christ and we're coming back with him for the end of all things. Fourth, this is perhaps the most encouraging. We'll talk about this in a little bit as well. But remember that when Christ was resurrected, when Christ was resurrected, he had a body, but it was different. It was a glorified body. And he looked the same as he always did, but there was, there was some sort of difference in him. And we're promised that same type of body, of, of body. Scripture calls it a glorified body. And one of the places that we see that promised to us is in Philippians 3. It says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We see this mentioned several places in Scripture, probably the, the biggest that we won't have time to read today, but if you're interested, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 35, talks further about that glorified body. So, perhaps you're freaked out about the flying through the air and the clouds and all that stuff. If you remember when Jesus ascended to the Father in Acts chapter 1, the same imagery was used, that Jesus was caught up into the air and ascended to be with his Father in heaven. So it's the same imagery that's used here. So we will receive a glorified body like Jesus when Christ returns. So be encouraged by those words. So reading verse 16 and 17 again, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So bringing all this to a point, Christ will return suddenly 
and without warning. It's an immediate thing that he returns. And then the church is raptured. All of the saints of God are called up to him. And here's the order of the rapture. Those that are already died, that have already died and are with Christ already, are reunited with their glorified bodies. Then those who are still alive when Christ returns are caught up or they're raptured with those who have already died to meet Christ in the air before he returns in judgment upon the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but that is positive, encouraging, and uplifting to me to think about Christ returning. Christ is coming back for us. And we will be reunited with those who have died and gone before us, those believers. So don't worry if this is still a little bit confusing, if you feel like you, you were grasping things with that claw and then it slipped out of your grasp. Don't worry if that's how you feel right now. Focus instead on the big idea, and that's that Christ is returning. He's coming back, and we will be with him. So the reason Paul wrote the Thessalonians was to provide encouragement, to provide hope for them, to dispel their concerns about the second coming. So we've seen what, what was going on in the church at Thessalonica, and we've, we've understood, hopefully, a little bit about, about what Paul's words mean. But now let's spend our remaining time on, on how do we respond? What do we do with this? How do we respond to this, this teaching? So while, while God, of course, knew, I, I doubt that Paul realized when he was writing these words that 2,000 years later that we would be reading them word by word and trying to understand their meaning. He didn't, he didn't know that, I'm sure. But he was answering specific questions that the Thessalonians had. He was dispelling their myth, the myths that they had, their deceptions, their misunderstandings. He was trying to dispel those and help people to understand. And he was doing that to give hope, to encourage. So the main idea, the big picture of this passage is that, is that the certainty of Christ's return compels us to live our lives in hope. The certainty of Christ's return compels us to live our lives in hope. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So that last verse is the whole point of the story. The Bible is clear. We don't have to worry about what will happen. This is our future. This is our hope. The final chapter has already been written. The Lord's coming, and he's right on schedule. So we don't need to look for another deliverer. We don't need to look to another person or to better education or to uh, more money, a better job, kids that obey, uh, a new relationship. We, we don't need to look to anything else to, look, to deliver us. We need to put our hope and our trust and our faith in our deliverer who is going to return as he promised that he would return. So because Paul begins and ends on this pastoral note of hope, and encouragement. We know that eschatology is meant to give us hope. That's the point. The point is to give us hope. It's not to cause division. So again, don't miss Paul's point. He doesn't want the Thessalonians to be ignorant of the fact that Jesus is alive, that he's coming back, and that we'll be with him forever. Now why is that important for us to remember those things or to know those things? Well, it's important so that we'll grieve differently. It's important so that we will comfort others differently. It's important so that we will share the truth in love differently. That's why Paul reminded us in verse 14 that Jesus died and then he rose from the grave. The, the truth of the resurrection gives us hope for today, and it gives us hope for that day when Jesus returns. 
So how, how specifically should we live our lives differently as a result of the fact that Jesus is returning? Well, a few examples, and the first one we're going to take is directly from this passage. Everyone will go through death. Death is a playing field leveler. It affects the rich and the poor. It affects those with a lot of education and those with very little education. Everyone experiences and goes through is touched by death in some way. No one is spared from that. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who have passed away, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So the certainty of Christ's return causes us to grieve differently because we have hope. So when a loved one, when, the, when a believer dies, that's a sad thing, obviously. That's a difficult thing. But we are assured that that loved one is with the Lord and will always be with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. When Christ returns, everyone, the whole church, all of the believers will be united with him for eternity. And of course, grieving isn't just about death. We grieve lots of things. We grieve bad relationships, poor finances, difficulty in financial struggles, uh, that bad grade we got on the test, a bad job. There's lots of things that we poor health. We grieve, we grieve lots of things. And we need to learn to prepare and to train ourselves to grieve well. We need to ground ourselves in the true hope that's offered in Jesus. Jesus defeated Satan he defeated sin, and he defeated death. So what else is there to fear if he's defeated all those things? He offers us eternal life, and so we can meet the difficulties of life head on. So we grieve as those who are not without hope. Second, again from this passage, the certainty of Christ's return causes us to encourage or to comfort people differently. Now, I've, I've known several people, perhaps you do or perhaps you're in this situation, people with chronic illness are so encouraged by the fact that one day they're going to receive a glorified body. Now, my, my ailments aren't that bad. My uh, hearing is going. My, my back is a mess. Um, it, it's really irritating. My eyesight, every single day, it seems like it's worse than it was the day before. But that is nothing compared, I know, to what some in this room experience on an everyday basis. And yet I am encouraged in remembering and knowing that someday I'm going to get a glorified body where things work the way they're supposed to work. So be comforted and indeed comfort each other with these words. We comfort and encourage as those who are not without hope. Third, the certainty of Christ's return should change the way that we serve. So just as an example, I know that many of you serve regularly with our preschoolers on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday nights. So just using that, that section, does, does the truth that Christ is going to return, does that give you motivation? Does that give you encouragement as you serve? As you love and serve those children, be reminded of the glorious hope that we have that Christ is returning. Our eyes are fixed on that truth. So even more than that, those that serve with the preschoolers are encouraged by the fact that because you serve, parents and others in this room can hear God's truth being given, can worship him rightly. A loving God is coming back for his people. We serve to point, we serve to point others towards the hope that we have in Christ. And our hope isn't in what we see or hear or touch for today. 
Rather, our hope in tomorrow drives us to serve today. So we serve as those who are not without hope. And then fourth, the certainty of Christ's return should change the way that we view our possessions, our finances. We just had a six-week sermon series on money, but we, we learned, we know, we understand that this world is fleeting. One day, everything that we know will all go away. All of our possessions, all of our accomplishments are going to go away. So when we live in light of Christ's return, we, we hold on loosely to our possessions. We give freely because we, we know that our hope is placed in something far greater than material goods. So we give as those who are not without hope. And we could go on and on. The, the certainty of Christ's return changes how we view relationships. It affects how we spend our time doing hobbies. It affects how we, how we plan our retirement. It affects how we work. We're a hopeful, changed people as we think about and live in light of the return of Christ. And the last thing is that I, I would encourage you to, to hear what Paul is saying. Understand this part. Scripture is so important for the believer. These, these Thessalonians had a wrong, a misguided belief about something. They were grieving. They were confused. They were uncertain. And Paul, as he shared Scripture with them, as he wrote this letter, which, which is Scripture, what happened to these people? Can you imagine them reading this and understanding the truth of God's Word and seeing that I don't need to grieve. I can have joy. I don't need to be hopeless. I can have hope. It's that way for all of us in all of our misguided beliefs and misunderstandings. So just a couple of verses to help us underscore this point. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. In Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So teaching makes alive. God's witness makes us wise. His precepts, his law, his teaching gives us joy. And then John 15, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So remember that we all have areas that we're misguided in, that we, we don't fully understand. So you may not be wondering whether you've, you've missed out on the second coming of Christ. You may not have entered today wondering, did I miss, was I left behind? You may not be wondering what happened to your grandpa, who is a believer in Christ, whether he is with God or not. But we all have circumstances that we, we don't understand, circumstances or situations that we have wrong beliefs about. And we need to have confidence in Scripture to guide us into that truth and understanding. So friends, when we live in light of the truth of God's Word, as the Thessalonians did, we live our lives differently. We live in hope. So as we, as we close, just a reminder again that Christ is returning. And I'm, I'm sure that there's a few in this room that, that don't have that hope that perhaps don't believe that Christ is returning. You may not believe that you need a Savior to take your place. You may believe that you're doing well enough on your own. And I wish that you would hear and understand this truth, that Christ is returning. We have hope right now in Christ. But I would tell you the simple fact in love, if you're not a believer in Christ, when you die or when Christ returns, you will be without hope. 
you will have lost out on that chance. So I would encourage you, as we, as we close, after we, we finish in a moment, stick around. Please ask somebody. If that's you, please ask somebody. We would love to share the joy and the hope and the love that we have in Christ. We'd love to share that with you. And for the believer, this isn't the lottery left to chance. One of the reasons that we don't place our hope in the lottery is because the people running the lottery really don't care about you. They, they care more about getting something from you. That's the world we live in, right? We live in a world where everybody is out to get something from you. That is not the way God is. God instead did the exact opposite. He gave everything for us. And we can trust him because he gave for us. So we may not understand all of the details of Christ's return. And we don't have to understand all of the details of his return. Because what we do have is an unshakable hope in the fact that he loves us and he's returning to claim us. And that certainty compels us to live our lives differently. We live in hope and joy as we wait for Christ to return. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have loved us so much that you're not looking to get something from us, that you are giving, you have given everything to us. And you've made these promises that you are coming back for us. And so we rejoice in that fact, that you love us so much, that you're coming back to claim us. God, we thank you for the hope that we have. We ask that we would take this hope and that we would live our lives differently. That we would live both in our private lives, in our work life, with our church family, in every aspect of who we are would be changed by the fact that you are returning and that you offer us this hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.